Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2203. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today I'm in beautiful Oakland, California with a very special guest by the name of Robert Yeager. Robert, welcome to Cars Yeah! Do you have it in gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? All right, I've got my foot off the clutch. All right, well, lay some stripes down, as they say. Now, before I give you a proper introduction, and we're going to talk today about a very cool book that Robert has written, I want to ask you one little thing. And I know your friends call you Bob. So, Bob, what's one thing that most people don't know about you? Well, um, they probably don't know um, how I got started in in uh, writing about cars and getting interested in cars. And the answer is actually in my little office here, sitting up on a shelf. And I've had this uh, for decades and decades since I was a kid. And what it is, it's my first gas-powered car. And it's what's called a spin-dizzy. Do you know what that is? I do know what those are. Yes, that goes way back. Yeah, they are are collector's items now, but they were made in the uh, 1930s and 40s. They were model cars that boys got and and adults too a lot of adults actually um and they had they were powered by gasoline engines that were used in model airplanes right and these cars became very popular and uh they even had races that many many people sometimes hundreds of people would attend these races and they they were put in they built the tracks out of wooden slots and uh, the cars would race around so they would go 130 miles an hour. Oh my and gosh. the other the other thing they're called is tether cars because the more common way that uh, hobbyists used them was they drove a stake in the ground and there were wires attached, two wires to the side of the car, and they spun around this uh, pole. Yeah, that was my first gas-powered car. Uh, and, uh, um, I got it when I was a preteen. And then later when I became a teenager, I acquired a 1940 baby blue Ford coupe and uh, it was raked and had headers. And, you know, that was a big deal. Yeah. That was kind of my start. And then in my thirties, I got into uh, vintage, uh, alphas and, uh, had a number of those, several of them. So I've, I've really been, uh, in, an enthusiast about things automobilia ever since I was a kid. Very cool. Yeah, I I do know of those. And uh, pretty cool. Uh, that's pretty cool. And the fact that you still have that on your shelf uh, brings back your history. So I love it. What a great story. Well, it's a good lead into what we're going to talk about today. So let me give you a proper introduction. Robert C. Yeager's love for cars began as a teenager. And as he mentioned, when he purchased that raked baby blue 1940 Ford Coupe for just 200 and $50. For the past dozen plus years, he has written about collectible and enthusiast cars for the New York Times. His additional credits include the Reader's Digest Family Circle, Encyclopedia Britannica, remember those, and many others. His novel, The Romanoff Stone, won two national awards and was optioned for a film. An outgrowth of this writing for the Times is his new book, The Next Gen Guide 
to car collecting, and it offers new and experienced collectors a richly illustrated and concise history of car collecting, guidance on buying and selling tips on living and car collector life, how collectors love their special cars, and explores the growing role women play as automotive enthusiasts. Also discussed are how the internet and social media have transformed the car collector marketplace. The readers will learn how to buy a car online without suffering buyer's remorse. I think I need to learn that lesson. Mikhail Haggerty, CEO of Haggerty, the world's largest insurer of classic and specialty vehicles, wrote the introduction of this fine book. We'll be back to learn a lot more from Robert, but first a word from our sponsor, so give them a little love, and we'll be right back. Autumn has arrived, the weather's changing, and that means your vehicles need extra protection against everything Mother Nature can drop. Covercraft offers you a multitude of layers of protection for your special rides. Are you putting your summer toys away? Watercraft, RV, motorcycles, trailers, or even your patio furniture? Covercraft has a custom fit cover for whatever you need. Covercraft offers you 10 different car cover options. That's right, 10 for your special vehicle's protection, whether stored inside or out. All carefully crafted into the form and fit with the quality and and attention to detail that's been their standard since 1965. And don't forget their custom fit seat covers, pet pad, Fido's going to get wet and muddy, I guarantee it, dash mats, sunscreens, and custom fit floor mats and trunk mats. Whatever the surface you want to protect, Covercraft has your solution. If you use the code ya 21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right, 10% off. Simply use the code yeah 21 at checkout. Come on, Mother Nature, bring it on. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. I was tired of my rates for my collector car insurance going up every year for no explainable reason. My carrier seemed to be turning into a media company versus an insurance company. And I realized that a portion of my policy premium was paying for all those so-called free media goodies. So I did my homework. I talked to knowledgeable collectors, shopped around, and discovered American Collectors Insurance. They've been serving the collector car hobby since 1976. You last that long by properly serving your customers' insurance need, not with a lot of fluff. ACI is ranked the number one online collector car insurance provider, according to Google, Trustpilot, Facebook, and they offer their real person guarantee live support. No never-ending phone loops when you need help. Plus, because you don't use your classic car as a daily driver, you could save up to 40% compared to regular auto insurance. American Collectors Insurance provides agreed value policies. So if you experience a total loss to your collector vehicle or it's stolen, you'll be paid the amount listed on your declaration page, less any deductibles, of course. No ifs, ands, or buts. Give them a call today and ask for your free quote at 866-A-C-I-Y-E-A-H. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine, Mark Greens, at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance, classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Fall is here, and you know what that means. Time to put a good coat of protection on your vehicle. I'm teamed up with AutoGeek, and they've been the leading source of auto detailing products, accessories, and expert knowledge for more than 20 years. What started back in 1997 as a small mail-order catalog company grew into a multi-website-based e-commerce store, and that's what they are today. With a large online presence on its own website featuring close to 100 different brands, 
AutoGeek has grown to be the largest car care retailer in the country. AutoGeek's wholesale program serves accounts in over 30 countries and its retail sector ships worldwide. If you want to protect your vehicle this fall, and you should, go to autogeek.net for the best product selection on the internet today and technical support. Autogeek.net is where I go for my detailing needs. That's autogeek.net. So, Robert, we are back. So this book you've written, I find it wonderful for a variety of reasons. Uh, It's huge. It's 192 pages. It's very, very thorough. And one of the things I love about it is I talk to so many people in the car industry, and the worry is always, will there be young people around to take care and be custodians for these fine cars? The answer is yes, is what I've learned after interviewing so many people. But I want to have you walk us through this book a little bit and talk a bit by bit about the different chapters and some of the things that you've covered. And then I'm going to integrate some of my questions that I normally ask my guests into what you've learned in writing this book. So first, what created the system or why did you write this book and focus on young people? Well, it's really an outgrowth, uh, uh, Mark, of my dozen or so years writing about collective uh, collector cars and enthusiast cars for the New York Times. Because what happened was when I started writing uh, about the cars, which would have been, you know, around early 2000s or before 2010, anyway, the hobby was really dominated by the white hairs. Or the, or the no hairs in my case. <laughs> or the no hairs, yeah. And it was very interesting because that held true really for several years. But I sort of Use the year 2014 as as kind of a mark when I really sensed a kind of a groundswell of change, and uh, that was the year uh, Gary Cooper's uh, Duesenberg sports car was auctioned at uh, during the Pebble Beach Car Week. Yeah, I remember that. You remember that? Yeah. It was uh, a beautiful car. Only two were made. The other one was uh, owned by Clark Gable. And um, the car was estimated to sell for $10 million. Instead, it sold for $22 million and became the most expensive American car ever publicly sold. Mm. And something, I don't know, something about that happened, that kind of to, in my mind, kind of crystallized the changes that were going on in the in the enthusiast car hobby and how they were actually becoming an investment. Cars were becoming an investment. And the other thing that I was starting to hear from people in the car auction business, people like that work for Bonhams and, and auctioneers like David Gooding and so on, was that the buyers of these cars were getting younger. And so I checked with my my. Uh, all things numerical about cars and the car hobby. And sure enough, they were picking this up in their data. And, uh, you know, they have these um, these programs you can tap where, where you can find out, you know, what kind of enthusiasm there is for car, who's buying the cars, and so on. And they were detecting a real demographic change, that the buyers were getting younger. And in fact, uh, one recent, well, this is in the last couple of years, they picked up that, um, and this is due probably to the to the salaries that people are getting in the high tech field. Yes. That that the second people, the second group demographically after uh, baby boomers, who were buying ten million dollar and up cars, were uh, the millennials. You know, very very well off uh, people in their in their thirties. Now that's not. You know, it's more typical that younger people are getting it at a lower level. But 
the numbers are really changing on the age level of people who are getting interested in in the hobby. And um, you know, I just kept seeing that and hearing that, and I and I started thinking, you know, there really should be a book for these gateway collectors. You know, the um, something that would take them really from the from the history of the automobile all the way up to the future. And so that's what the book, the chapters begin with the history. And uh, the first couple of chapters talk about historical things, uh, like, you know, the first car was a, uh, the first automobile was really this uh, car, and I think it was 1769. It was a French steam car. Uh, it was practically impossible to drive because the pot of water sat over the front wheels and made it very difficult to steer. <laughs> and so not surprisingly, not surprisingly, it also became the first automobile to be in, a, in an accident, kind of swerved into a wall. Understeer. <laughs> um, yes. And then we go in, you know, through, uh, um, I think, 1896 was the first real automobile, which was uh, Carl Benz's motor wagon. And we go on through the historical things. Uh, you know, uh, one interesting historical point is that, that uh, uh, in 1900, there were actually more electric cars sold than gasoline cars. Well, um, things have come back around about, yeah, we're getting close to it. Interesting. But beware, because by 1930, there were no electric cars at all. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Henry Ford's wife drove an electric car until 1914. Um, wow. So, and anyway, I take the reader through the history, and, and we talk about the the era of consolidation and the, the great years of design in the 1930s and 40s. And then we go into how to buy a car. We also, uh, I also discuss the uh, growing role of women in the uh, hobby of of uh, car collecting and car enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Oh, when I was writing that chapter, um, I found out that uh, a woman, Baronessa Maria Antoinetta Alvanzo, an Italian woman who was uh, very wealthy and very beautiful had actually raced against Enzo Ferrari and uh, been a teammate of Tazio Nuvolari, who was the greatest driver in the world at, in those days. So, of course, and then I went again to my my uh, sources at Haggerty, and I found out that they were picking up a uh, an increase uh, in the number of women who were interested in, in enthusiast cars and vehicles. And um, it was still a small number, but it had grown quite a bit in those years between 2010 and 2020. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so then the book takes you through um, three different chapters that separately talk about buying an American car, buying a, a um, European car, and buying a Japanese car. And uh, I tried to offer some suggestions. There are only suggestions, you know. I I wanted to get the reader thinking about what you'd think about when you when you and try to give them some good candidates in those categories. And so there's a discussion of some some candidate cars that w- might make sense for someone getting their first uh, enthusiast car. And then we go on with chapters about uh, living with a car, loving a car, and uh, selling a car. Um, and finally, I wrap up with a chapter on the future. And uh, I was very lucky because, you know, my book is generational, you might say, and that it's, uh, you know, it's aimed at the next gen. And luckily enough, there were two father, father and son teams in the San Francisco Bay Area who are world world known. I mean, uh, one is Patrick Otis and his son Tazio, who um, 
uh, ha- restore um, vintage Ferraris, Alfa Romeos, and other cars. They're located in Berkeley. They're known all over the world. I, I'll never forget one night I was I was in their shop and uh, I was standing next to an engine stand. There was a, a V12 Ferrari engine there, and it turned out it was the engine from the car that had just been sold for I think it was in the fifty million dollar range. It, it was the at the time the most expensive car ever publicly sold, and there it was in Patrick's shop for the engine to be. No, um, I wonder if um, that was uh, Greg Witten's Ferrari that was sold a few years back for, I think, $48 million plus plus commissions and so forth. Well, I believe it probably was. Of course, the more expensive Ferrari now, I guess the most expensive one is the one that the gentleman from WeatherTech bought. Oh, uh, yeah, David's, been, yeah, David's $70 million plus car. <laughs> yeah, and that has been eclipsed by, um, as I'm sure you well know, by... Um, well, no, by um, the uh, Mercedes that was sold earlier this year for 143 million. Yeah, out of the museum. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I, I love a lot of aspects of the book, and there's so many different things you touch on. I have to ask you this: as you were going through this, was there one thing that stood out for you that a young collector should really? most pay attention to is there one thing that you and i kind of i'm kind of leading you to what i think i know the answer is but we'll see where you go with this uh as a young person wants to get into because we talked about some very expensive cars today and most people majority of people can't afford to get into those levels of cars however there's lots of options at lower levels. Everything from, you know, collect. I have a friend that just bought a Panhard. And for those of you listening to go, well, what? I'll look it up. A Panhard <laughs> that he's restoring. He's a young guy in his 30s, but he loves unique cars like Fossil Vegas and so forth. But is there something that came through to you to help advise a young person that how they should get into this world of having a fun toy car or collector car? Well, I really, if there's one kind of, piece of advice that I've gotten from many sources and and uh, I myself think is true. It never hurts to pay a lot, a lot more for a really, really good car. Yes. <laughs> um, that's, that's really, you know, um, because paying more at the front end will very often save you untold dollars um, as you go through the car. Uh, and, uh, uh, so buy the best car you can. That's really the rule. Yeah. Bruce Meyer, who's the consummate quintessential car collector out of Los Angeles, a big part of the Peterson museum. His quote is buy the best car you can possibly afford and cry only once and never look back. (laughs) (laughs) And it's absolutely true. You know, the other piece of this is where I was trying to focus you on, and I think you'll agree with me, is buy a car you love. Don't buy a car expecting to make money on it unless that's your profession and you know the industry really well because uh, speculation is a tough deal to do, but find a car that you really love. And you touch on that quite a bit. One of your chapters is find your tribe. And I always tell people, join a car club and be around people that love these cars and know these cars before you find a car because they will help guide you in the right direction. That That is absolutely true, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, you want a car that you can love, especially if you are, as the book is, is intended, you know, primarily for the gateway collector. If this is your first collector car, you want to drive it. You don't want to just have it in a garage right. and look at it. You want to enjoy it. 
And, uh, you know, it's good for the cars. Um, as I've heard Patrick, uh, Otis say, you know, you want to get, get that car out and let the cool air blow over that engine block, you know, <laughs> yeah. and just drive it, you know, and exercise it. You know, I have a very low mileage Mercedes, but, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice uh, the need of that car to be driven just to keep it in low mileage. I drive it regularly and uh, maybe you drive it for short distances, but you give it a, you know, good exercise. But that's absolutely critical. Yeah, it's important. I bought many cars over my years based on condition and low mileage. And every one of those has ended up costing me quite a bit to get them somewhat roadworthy because cars like airplanes, like any mechanical device, even if you like fine Rolexes, they don't sit well. They need to be moving because things dry up, seals dry up and so forth. So that's a a big part of it. You know, I like to ask my guests about mentors or driving inspirations. Is there somebody that's been in your life that has been very influential and key to your career path? Well, um, I guess there's been a number of people, but um, certainly uh, my uncle, I had an uncle who was a car nut and he could take a car apart and, you know, just fix anything and loved cars. And uh, he was a very influential figure in my life. And But I've had mentors all along the way. You know, I had... Uh, a great automotive editor at the New York Times, James Cobb, and uh, he knew all about cars and more than I'll ever know. And and I've had a great mechanic for many years. And and uh, all you you learn from all those people. You learn, as you say, you know, in your tribe, you learn from other people who have owned the car that you want or that you have. And they're all mentors, mentors. And they're absolutely critical to have that circle of people, you know. And I just can't imagine, you know, for example, you know, going out and buying a a 50-year-old Porsche or something without knowing people who own these cars and and can guide me. Um, Now, that's one of the great things about this website, Bring a Trailer. You know, they have all these commenters that are, many of them really know a lot about the car that's for sale. But you need more than, you need more than that. You need, you know, you need people you can talk to and, and hang with and so on. After interviewing so many people, I've learned a key thing about the automotive industry is not the cars. It's the people. You meet the most interesting people, and almost everyone who's into cars will talk to you about their car, and they love for you to ask questions. So I always advise, especially young people, go to car shows, go to, go to Concord events, go to races, walk up to people and ask questions and be a good listener, and you will learn so much uh, that you never thought, maybe more than you want to you learn. We're going to take a short break for our sponsors again. When we come back, I want to talk about maybe some challenges you came up against in putting this book together. So keep that thought in mind, and we'll be right back. 20, 50, or 100 years from now, will there be a workforce to care for the collector vehicles we love? With auto shop programs disappearing across the country, it's a question we enthusiasts have to ask. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these vehicles aren't lost to time. One of the many ways RPM, which is short for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, is accomplishing this goal is through workforce development initiatives. The RPM Apprenticeship Program enables the next generation of artisans to earn a living while they learn the craft of restoring and preserving these vehicles 
directly from industry professionals. The Endangered Skills Program documents the process of masters training future craftspeople on a variety of critical skills in danger of being lost forever. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of the collector vehicle skills trade, visit RPM Foundation today. They're one of the charities of choice here on Cars Yeah. You've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine here on Cars Yeah for a couple of years now. Well, they're growing. And in 2023, they're going to grow from four issues a year to six. And there's an opportunity here for you to take advantage of this growth. If you go to LinkageMag.com and click on the Renew button, if you already subscribe, you can get a great deal. Use the code RENEW6 for one year and you'll get six issues for the price of four or type in RENEW12 for two years where you also have a great savings. Plus, they'll even throw in a free Linkage hat. How cool is that? The publisher of Linkage is Donald Osborne. He's been a guest multiple times here on Cars Yeah. He's become a good friend of mine and I'll tell you, Linkage Magazine is one of those newer magazines that you're going to want to get. It's all about experiences, opinions, and values. It's a wonderful publication, something I look forward to getting. And now that I'm going to be getting six a year, even more special. So go to LinkageMag.com. Again, use the code RENEW6 or RENEW12 to get that special deal. Do it before December 31st, 2022, so that in 2023, you'll get six issues of Linkage Magazine instead of four. So, Bob, I always ask my guests about a challenge. We call it the challenge question here, but I want to relate this to putting this book together. What what was maybe one of the biggest challenges you faced in writing this book? Well, I guess the breadth of the material, because I knew I wanted it to be a book, not, you know, I, I want experienced collectors to like it and use it, but I also wanted to make sure it was a book that um, would be useful for the what I think of as the gateway collector. And so the span of the book starts with history and it ends with the future and it covers everything between. And, you know, when I think about how I came to do it, you know, it's really really begins with, with, you know, my earliest reporting for the times and all the way up to the present, that's all reflected in the book. And of course, I did a lot of, of interviewing and research and so on, especially for the book. I guess the challenge was this, was the breadth of the book and covering as much as it did. It, you know, it'd be, it'd be one thing to write a book about a single car, you know, but this is a book about the whole field. And, and so it, the breadth of it was a challenge and, and, uh, and with that, you know, and, and it reflects all those years of writing about cars that I'd done before. Chapter 12 in your book is titled The Road Ahead. And I want to touch on that a little bit. As you wrote this and you look at the future and young people in the future cars, what did you learn there? What are you seeing? Well, I think I learned that uh, I think we should be, be welcoming to the uh, event uh, to the advent of of electric power in automobiles, including vintage cars, and I have some uh, some reporting in that chapter about the uh, cars that Jaguar and Aston Martin have built, um, that where they've converted. A, a, in fact, a Princess uh, uh, Prince Harry and and uh, the Duchess uh, Meghan Markle. But when they left their wedding in England, they drove off in a Jaguar 120 that had been converted to EV. That's right, yeah. 
and uh, Aston Martin has produced a DB6 uh, EV model. And now, and this I found out when I was writing the book, there are now a couple of companies in England that are converting classic cars to EV. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, I think there's a, a real possibility that, that that will expand during the future. I also think, however, that it's easy to be swept up by over-enthusiasm in the future of electric cars. I think fossil fuels are going to be around for many, many, many years. I think to force um, the adaption of automobiles into electric uh, operation is a risky business. And yeah. I think some people in some people in Florida who watched their Teslas catch on fire in the flooding are learning that lesson very painfully. You know, there are definite, um, what should I say, risks in the EV field, and among them is the whole battery picture. You know, is that really solved? How much does it cost to replace the batteries in your car? Whoa, watch out. Stand by for a blast. I want to be optimistic about the future, and and uh, I, the future of collecting, I think, is very strong. You know, I interviewed, I ha have verbatim interviews with Patrick Otis and his son, and also um, Bruce Trenery and his son Spencer, who also happen to live in the Bay Area and own a company called Fantasy Junction, which is really a, a globally known uh, retailer of vintage cars. And, you know, the... The sons, and this is why I was so glad to be able to interview them, Tazio is only 26, and Spencer's 42, so they fit perfectly, you know, in the next-gen category, and they're both very optimistic. All four of those men are optimistic uh, about the future of vintage cars, and, and with good reason. I mean, look at what's happened to the market and how strong it is, and bring a trailer. Do you realize bring a trailer is probably going to have one billion dollars in sales this year? <laughs> no almost doubt. certainly. Yeah. They yeah. almost made it last year. They almost made it last year. So the strength of the market is um has been surprising uh, and 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 uh, reassuring. It really has. In fact, I sold uh, a collector car that I'd had for thirteen plus years on bring a trailer. In June of this year, uh, that car got a record for the kind of car in year it was, which still holds on um, Bring a Trailer. It was a great experience for me. I did an entire podcast about it with uh, Rafi Manazian, a designer who also helps people sell cars on Bring a Trailer. He helped me sell my car. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, Randy Nunnenberg. I've had him on the show several times talking about Bring a Trailer and how successful he's been with that business and selling it. So yeah, the world and the future of collectible cars, EV cars, It's there's a renaissance going on, a lot of exciting things. But I want to talk to you about your personal passion for cars. Is there one special car that you've had in your life that really stands out? And if so, what was it? Or what is it? Well, I did. I had a car for many years, and uh, it was an Alfa Romeo uh, 2600 Touring Spider. And it was a beautiful car to look at. It was a, a very interesting car to drive. It, it had a double overhead cam, I-6 aluminum engine. It's one of the best engines I've ever had in a car. Very low maintenance, lots of torque and power. The one thing that's sad about that car is that Alfa Romeo did not focus a little more attention on the suspension system mm -hmm. because it's a heavy car and uh, it's it's not a car that, that you take through the twisties like the Giulietta Alphas were, and I've owned those too. It was so beautiful and it had so much torque 
uh, and and it was so reliable. It, it was just a, a memorable car, and uh, I had it for 20 years, I think, and finally sold it for wow. many times what I paid for it. That was one that really sticks out. The uh, Certainly, um, the Alfa Romeo Giulietta, I had a 750 Spider. That's a wonderful car and so fun to drive. I have other cars I've loved, you know, and right now I, I have a, a Lexus. 300 SC, the Series 1 Lexus Coupe, gorgeous car and unbelievably reliable. But that 2600 Alpha will always stand out. Sounds wonderful. So I'm going to be your car psychologist today a little bit. Probably a unique question you've not heard before. I'm going to crawl into your head. If you were reincarnated, pun intended, manifest as a vehicle, what would Bob be, but more importantly, why? Gosh, that's a strange question, <laughs> Mark. Uh, it brings about some very unique answers, I'll tell you that. I don't know. Well, it, it might well be that Alpha 2600 because I had such a strong emotional connection with that car. I don't know. It was just a, a really beautiful car, and uh, it was so strong in terms of its uh, its reliability um, and uh you know, we went through some things with that car, getting it set up. The cars were, were delivered with a Solex carburetor system that was very problematic. And uh, I, I don't want to go too far into the technical things, but it had a it had a two-throat system. The second throat would open up when the car was going fast, but it was it had a rubber um, a rubber um, valve in it. And those rubber valves could wear out and stick. And if they if they stuck, you ran the very likely risk of burning a valve. So the first thing that we did with the car, my mechanic and I, was we we switched those carburetors to Weber's. <laughs> yeah. And it it just it just made a huge difference. We got them dialed in right, and the car the beautiful idling, beautiful everything, and. And uh, after that, it was like owning a Honda. I mean, it, the re <laughs> now there's it, the, there's the, the quote. <laughs> well, I mean, it was because you just never had to spend much money on it. I mean, it was just ridiculous how, how reliable it was. It really yeah. was. I understand. I had a Carmen Ghia that I actually put some uh, uh, new carbs on that car, but a friend said you got to switch those over to Weber's. They're so much better. And I raced a Lotus 18 for years in vintage racing that had. Weber's on it that were just easy to work on and easy to make work. So I, I understand a hundred percent. So this book, I always ask guests to recommend a book. Obviously today we're going to be recommending this book by Bob, uh, Robert C. Yeager's book, the next gen guide to car collecting and the subtitle, how to buy, sell, live with, and love a collectible car. And the introduction of course, of course was written by my friend, Mikeel Haggerty, who's been a guest on the show here a couple times. So I'm going to enable you to go on the ultimate drive today, Bob. I'm going to buy you any car in the world. I'm that kind of a guy. You're going to be able to take it anywhere you'd like. And here's the key. You can take anybody with you, even somebody who's no longer with us, somebody from the past, which could make this drive very interesting. So what does the ultimate drive look like for you? Well, now, do you know, want to know which car I'd be in? Oh, let's start with the car because it is cars. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I'd be in that Alpha 2600. Oh, we're back to the Alpha. Wow. Okay. Because it was all its faults. It was a beautiful car to drive as long as, you know, you didn't have the real tight uh, corners. But even then, you know, if you had a few. And I would have my late friend, John McClay, who introduced me to that car in the passenger seat. And I'd have my late 
dog, uh, Samson, sitting in the, there's back seats in that car, you know, and he'd be sitting in the back with his nose in the air. <laughs> and we would be driving up to, I have a second home in a place called the Sea Ranch in Northern California. And we would be on Highway 1, driving up the coast, and it would be a sunny day, and we'd be heading up the coast to Sea Ranch. Nice. That sounds like a, a wonderful, wonderful drive. And you've taken us on a very cool drive today. I want to thank you for, for being my guest. But before I let you go, could you share some parting words of wisdom that might relate to the next gen who's going to be buying a collector car? I think we've really already mentioned the, the two main points. You know, buy what you love and pay enough to get the best you can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, those are key words of advice for anybody at any point in your life buying an old vehicle. Get what you love first and pay as much as you possibly can. Uh, yeah, I've had so many friends who bought cars that they thought they got a deal on and had to do restoration. And it's always three, four times as much money as you thought it was going to be. So if you want to go out, unless you like restoring cars yourself in the garage or you love giving money to someone else to restore a car, buy the best you possibly can. How can people learn more about you and follow you, Bob? Well, my book is on Amazon. It's right there. I have a website, www.robertcyeager.com. Some of my past history, uh, Mark, which we didn't go into much, for a number of years, I wrote originals articles for the Reader's Digest. Ah. A number of my Digest articles are there, and uh, I guess that's uh, as good a, a place to go as any, but mainly go out to Amazon and buy my book. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll put links to that, and you listeners, you regular listeners know there's a great place on the Cars Yeah website called Guest Recommended Books, where there's over 2,500 books listed there with quick, easy links to buy. And if you go to Robert's, or what we call him Bob, but Robert C. Yeager's uh, show notes page on the Cars Yeah website, we'll put links there so you can get your hands on this book. And if you have a, a young person in your life, this would make a great holiday gift idea for that young person who's thinking about getting into car collecting. So there you you go. We've saved you an enormous amount of time on shopping this holiday season. Bob, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing this new book with us today. This is fantastic. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!